Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Hey everyone, it's Matthew Zachary, and welcome back to Out of Patience. What was once a show is now a party right here on the same feed you already subscribed to. Why? Because I'm now the ringleader of a whole new cast of senior correspondents with segments featuring opinion pieces, rants, and the latest news about the shit show that is our fabulous healthcare system. The only thing that hasn't changed is our mission to make healthcare suck less for everyone. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome back. My God, what a great show I had today. Interviewing Dr. Lishan Aklog. He's a thoracic surgeon. He knows the doctor that helped my dad live after his triple bypass. Like such a karmic moment to meet a man that knew the guy. He's the chairman and chief executive officer at PavMed and Lucid Diagnostics. And this show is all about this brave new world of technology and diagnostics to a point where it's now possible to never get certain cancers in the first place at all. Now that's progress. He fled political violence in Ethiopia as a young teenager. He's held people's hearts in his hands. He knows Dick Cheney has no pulse. We'll get to that funny part of the show. We talked about what keeps him up at three in the morning, why he started this company, what his passions are. And then, of course, we dig into things like getting a drug to market, getting a diagnostic. How do people know it's possible to not get something they don't want? Like, I don't know, cancer? He's also one of the top 50 healthcare technology CEOs of 2021. And my God, what a story. This guy's a human being. He's got empathy. And not that you want to see a cardiac thoracic surgeon in your life, but if you do, he's the guy. Enjoy Dr. Lishan Aklog. Here we go. Lishan, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks. Uh, it's great to be here. Long time. I think years. Yeah, it's been it's about two years. Yeah, we've been uh, trying to connect for a while. Special shout out to Sean O'Neill. Yeah, a little Who's... pandemic to deal with and a few other a factors. What? <laughs> wait, wait, did something happen? Earth is. I must have missed this stuff. Trying to end and things. Yeah. George Carlin does a great bit about how we're here to save the planet, but the planet's going to be fine with that. We're the ones that are exactly. fucked, not the planet. Exactly. So much yeah. for that. Exactly. I'm thrilled to have you here because I'm on this hellbent quest to better understand how the hell. Society can do a better job reaching the people that need to know shit they never thought they knew they had to need. And that all is about an intervention that you never expected to have. Correct. And we're going to get to preventative care because that's like the whole, can you not get cancer? <laughs> what a great conversation to have. Progress from like the three drugs I had back in the 90s. 
But let's start with like, all right, you are like an acclaimed cardiac, amazing human being person. What got you, like choosing medicine makes sense, you want to help, but was there a passion there that start from something else? It was a, it was a bit of a meandering path. So I was a complete math and science nerd really math and physics. And I had no, my father was a very prominent physician in Ethiopia. I grew up in Ethiopia and he was the first cardiologist there. He was very, just a very prominent guy. And everyone assumed, well, chip off the old block, Lishan would follow in his paths. And I had, I literally was not, had no interest in that. And I was going to go off and be a high energy particle physicist. I spent time in a in Fermi lab when I was a, a young kid and was a bit precocious when it came to, came to math and science. And I just eventually found that and a lot of it, this is from my father's experience. I went back to Ethiopia one summer and, and uh, basically hung out with him and all of his prominent physicians and and decided that uh, you know I had to do some. I had to really work in an area where I had interactions with people and, and was able to to uh, to help them. Yeah, it was a little bit corny, sort of medical school application thing, mm-hmm. but that's where we ended up. Did you have a I'm so sorry for me party? <laughs> I uh, no, I just uh, I looked around and you know when you get to upper echelons of physics, you get you run into some weird characters. And I looked around, I was like, I like the sides here, but this is I don't see myself showing up to work every Sounds day. Sounds like the squad you were meant to be a part of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I obviously I, I stalk all my guests and they do all the research and all the homework and. Yeah, I've had a lot of guests on the show who are in medicine who basically fled and were refugees. I don't think that was your case in particular. It's funny. I don't think of it that way because I, I joke and I'm sure, you know, the people I work with, you know, sort of roll their eyes when I say this. But I still think like a physicist. And even though I've left medicine and now I'm in, on the business side, I operate, no pun intended, uh, as a surgeon. So my mentality and my kind of psyche is very much the same as it was when I was trying to understand the origins of the universe and things like that. Right. I mean, I, I had a colleague on the show actually last week who came over from Niger mm-hmm. and she was a refugee. She came over at like 12 years old with right. her family and, you know, her, do- her her dad was an engineer yeah. in Niger and he had to wind up working in like a steel mill. Yeah. Oh yeah, you're talking about. Sorry, you're talking about the the the, the immigrant side of things. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I was. Uh, I left at 13. My parents literally put me and my older my older sister on a plane and says you're going to Naperville, Illinois, to live with some American families because of political violence that was really bloody and getting out of hand in Ethiopia in the late in the late 70s. And yeah, landed in O'Hare Airport, met the family for the first time. Uh, I have a there's a little piece that I wrote in the Wall Street Journal when there was um, all of the anti-immigrant stuff back in 2016, describing this and um, left the airport and they said, well, are you hungry? Do you want to eat? And I'm like, sure. They, what do you want to eat? And I said, apple pie. And literally with no <laughs> with no sort of understanding of the irony of it and all that. And we, before we even went to the house, we stopped at Pop and Fresh Pies in Ogden Avenue in Naperville, Illinois. And that was my first meal on arriving. Not apples to apples, see what I did there. But in, <laughs> in like an Iron Man, when he's captured, it comes back, I need a cheeseburger. Yeah, yeah, Just exactly. give me a cheeseburger. Exactly. Right. Uh, couldn't have scripted it. Any, so any that got you into this track of what do we do now? Right. So I, you know, um, I mean, I was here in America, I had the opportunities. I mean, I wasn't cult- culturally, I had, had amazing teachers back in Ethiopia. I was actually pretty advanced already. I had uh, American, I went to American schools. And so I, you know, I came in with a solid background, but obviously the opportunities that were provided to me by this country are just indescribable, both, you know, starting with these families who brought me in as a, 
as a as a son and um, as a family brought me as a son and then opportunities I got along the way in terms of getting a great education and and having the opportunity to go do amazing things in in, uh, in medicine and surgery and heart surgery and and now what I'm doing now. My father had a triple bypass like six or seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And I forget the name of the doctor, but it was the same guy that did Clinton's. It was uh, Craig, Craig Smith. Yeah, Craig, yeah, Craig Smith. Smith of Columbia. Yeah, that's amazing, right. Amazing, an amazing human being. Worship that man. Yeah. Hey, you saved my dad's life, but it's like, I hold your heart in my hand. Yeah, he's he is just a gentleman, surgeon, brilliant, you know, a real doctor. A lot of surgeons are not, you know, are sort of seeing themselves as technicians. The man had empathy. He cared. He came out and asked questions. He spent time. He had a thing um, uh, in the peak COVID in the first couple of months. Where he would he was writing these essentially blog posts. He's a surgeon, but he was talking blog posts about the disease and about the sort of the the, the drama and the human suffering. And a lot of it was st- started to get people sort of who were in the trenches and just you know getting hammered in those first couple of months. And it it kind of spread. It became it went viral, and we used to just read it every day. And we all know him, so we're like it was just an amazing thing that. That that really demonstrated that empathy and that that the humanity that yeah. So your, your dad had a good doctor, good person as like, well as a good surgeon, as well as a great surgeon. In the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. He's still here. He's very happy. He writes him a card every year. Yeah, <laughs> still I here. St- I get those. I get cards from people I opened on twenty years ago. Somehow Open they, heart surgery anniversary. They track me down and they say, "Here's my twenty. It's been my 20, 20 years since my surgery." So let's get it. I empathy is such an open ended conversation to have. Let me ask you if this you think if this is a fair assessment. Mm-hmm. It's easy to say we've lost empathy in medicine, but is it because human beings have gotten less empathetic in medicine or because the system, quote unquote, has made it nearly impossible to have enough time with these patients in primary care and specialty care where the, the Hippocrates you wish to practice just cannot be truly invested in. Yeah, I, it's a complicated. There's no simple answer to that, but I can tell you that I fall on the a little bit more on the line of physicians blame the system too much. The system is, is terrible. There, 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 there are lots of issues that the need system. to be. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> a lot of things that need to be fixed, right? But there's a lot of whining, and I think I think a lot of physicians have become just kind of jaded and transactional, and 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 they forget the privilege. You know, it used to be that that when med- you know, medicine was sort of the noble profession was also a privilege, you know, the privilege to have uh, a job that you could show up, show up to every day where, you know, your work is actually, you know, improving lives and at times saving lives, and particularly in high-end specialties. And I think a lot of that has been lost just societally and just a whole variety of other things. I, I just, I, I, th- I but that, that, that's not to say there aren't, you, you can see it because there are people like Dr. Smith and, and, yeah. and others who, who, uh, you know, who just, exude that every day and so you can see that contrast they're working under the same system they're dealing with the yeah. same mm-hmm. headaches with you know electronic health records and pre-authorizations and all the things that people are constantly you know malpractice and all the things that physicians sort of whine about every day you know which are real but there are people who are working under that same system who still who haven't lost that sense of privilege of being a, being a physician and and caring for people and if you're a heart surgeon actually holding somebody's heart and stopped and fix, yeah. fixing it which is Really, the epitome. That's a strange, epitome, terrible power privilege. Yeah, isn't it? it's a, it's a, it, it's really a mind blowing thing, and it's and and most, a lot of surgeons kind of move on from that, and they just become more technicians. But I never. I mean, I do miss that part of it, and I never t- um, took that for granted. I mean, the the most dramatic for me is 
people think about heart transplants as sort of technically difficult. They're actually not that technically. Sewing in a heart is not the most technically challenging heart operation. It's crazy. Yeah, as I do that, this that every seems. Thursday. Yeah, right. But but you know, there are, with the bypass surgery that your father had can actually be more tricky than than heart transplant. But in terms of the you know, just kind of the meta, I don't know, the metaphysical sort of power of the whole thing. You know, you you have, I will, I'll never forget, you walk in the next morning and you look on the monitor and you see an EKG, you know, the EKG tracing and you, and the person's up and awake and talking to you and you think, you think, wow, that's amazing. The yeah. humanity, you know, you're looking at a completely different tracing because you knew what it looked like because mm-hmm. it was sick and it was very abnormal and you're sitting there talking to this person who was, you know, really sick and had a, had a, had a, and stage hard, and you look up, you look at them, they're like chowing down, you look up, and it's just, it it, it never ceases. Well, the uh, Urkel, did I yeah. do that? <laughs> Shows up. No, actually, it wasn't, it's not so, just to be clear, it was not sort of the, 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 the personal victory there. It was more just, you know, meta, just very meta. meta right? yeah, yeah, like, wow, how crazy is it that, that we have the ability to change these people's lives like that. So that's the privileged part of it that I talk about. You're the uh, first thoracic surgeon I've had on the show in 300 episodes. So I had to bring up this anecdote, which you may know already. Dick Cheney, valveless mechanical heart. Did you know this? I did, yeah. He has uh, no pulse. He has a heart mate, yeah. Have you seen those? I've I've implanted them, yeah. Really? Yeah. They work really well? They work. And it's interesting that, uh, and we're getting better at it. Uh, People have been working on artificial hearts since the 1960s. There were two famous, very famous heart surgeons back at Texas Heart Institute that have been working on this for decades. It's not an easy problem to solve. And in the last 20 years, there's been significant progress. And you have these implantable, um, pulseless Pumps. I mean, the heart's ultimately. How do you just not a have a pulse? Right. How does that work when well, you go to check out? Just or whatever? I mean, think of a think of a. Um, I mean, you think of a um, any kind of plumbing. You, you don't have to have pulsatile flow. You don't right. have to have a pump that goes that contracts. That's just how we're designed. Uh, I believe he got a heart transplant, but he had that for some period of time, and right. then as a bridge, which is which is the most common way those. Uh, heart devices are are used, uh, and eventually got a transplant. Right in the seventies. Yeah. Right, so you just have to. <laughs> how do you go through life without a pulse? How does that work when the you go to the doctor? Oh, uh, you know, I mean, y- y- there's a lot when when you take your clothes off and you're in the in the you know there's tubes and yeah, wires and things. Place, yeah. so there's, no, there's no mystery. Not as to walking what's around going on the beach like oh. Yeah. But if you did check someone's pulse, yeah, there would be no yeah. pulse. It just there's just flow. So. So you've been at this a very long time, and you've seen the evolution of medicine and the progress we've made, and quality of life used to not be a thing that mattered to patients, and now it's part of like what is defined as a, quote, outcome, Yes, which is so, I think it's part derivative, but part intentional, because what's important to this patient is different than what's important to that patient. How have you seen this from your perspective as it pertains to, I don't want to be here, I didn't ask to be here, I'm terrified, and I don't know who to trust. Again, there's a lot to there's a lot to unpack there. So the first thing that I think you hinted at, which is an interesting thing to touch on, which is that in medicine everything has to be kind of formalized and structured and and scientific method and so forth. So when you talk about when normal people talk about quality of life, right, it's like, well, how are you doing? How you know, how's your life? But when it sort of creeps its way into organized medicine, it's quality of life instruments and surveys and, you know, all this sort of analytic stuff, which is good. I mean, I'm not minimizing. There's there's useful information to be had there in terms of understanding how to assess the things that we do and be better and so forth. But it, that's not useful to patients. You know, it's not useful to patients to say, hey, okay, it looks like from what you've told me, your QL, you know, your score on the every every disease has its own, has a, its own QL scale, QOL scale. And 
yeah, you're a six. I'm like, well, what does that mean to me? Right. It doesn't mean anything to me. Right? So, so I do think we, 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 and I think there's addressing it uh, as, as on an individualized basis is something that medicine probably doesn't do as well. I can tell you, I'll give you one quick example because my 86 year old mother lives with me and she has, she has a good quality of life, but she has a lot of medical issues that need to be managed. And I'm pretty much coordinating everything for her. And, and I, I can tell you with her, every decision uh, that, that is made with regard to her numerous medical problems is actually based on me watching her every day and mm-hmm. understanding, you know, going for a walk with the dog and do it, you know, just, you know, it is truly her quality of life. It's not some number on a, on some, some scale that was designed and validated, and, you know, in, in some clinical study. Right. So, but she's my mom. So I, you know, well, she's I, I, could, have I, could, you. I could be invested in that, you know, but uh, that's sort of an extreme example. Yeah. For historical context, many of my listeners know this. I've said this ad nauseum on the show. But, you know, in the late 1990s, you're surviving cancer. They're like, you're lucky to be alive. Right. right. We don't say that anymore. Or do we? We shouldn't. I mean, <laughs> I don't, you know, I think I think we've made frustratingly slow, but certainly some progress in, in, in certain aspects. I mean, I, I've had a couple of, you know, I'm in my mid-50s, and I have, I'm starting to have cousins now who are going through this. I had one cousin who had, was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, and I told, you know, most of my close family, oh, that's, you need to start, like, figuring out what's, yeah. what's going to happen. He had, a, he had fluid around his lungs, and there's all the bad signs of that, right? And he's, that was four years ago. He's in good shape. He's on Keytruda, I think, or some analog of Keytruda, one of these immunotherapies. And right. For those of us who've seen this for decades, it's it's bordering on miraculous. And um, <clears throat> another 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 cousin recently is a pancreatic cancer survivor. Mm-hmm. You know, br- yeah. brutal pre chemo, a robotic pancreatic resection, another brutal round of chemo afterwards so the whole time i'm thinking this is the best we can do yeah you know he you know he gave up almost gave up a couple of times had to really just encourage him to just hang in there and it was brutal but you know no evidence of disease he's a year you know a year and a half out and um that again that was universally in most of my career in practicing medicine was a death sentence. it was a true death sentence yeah, but still, bringing someone to the brink of death to save their life. Exactly. Can we, we not have to do that yeah, anymore? exactly. Right. But that's what we're going to talk about in the second half of the show. So we'll be right back after these phenomenal ABC Family messages from 1984. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery Starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So... From like historical perspective, I was diagnosed 26 years ago. There was like four drugs. There was surgery and four drugs. Mm-hmm. Now there's 40 billion drugs, which is great progress, but it also makes for very interesting shifts in how people who become patients are treated. But in the case of where we're going to get to what you're doing now, of these miracle drugs and products and diagnostics that exist today, we can find things almost as they start to happen instead of having to wait for it to be something bad. Let's talk about how you left medicine to get into this entrepreneurial role of, is it possible to just not get shit in the first place? Yeah, I think there are, there are um, <clears throat> threads that, common threads between what you're talking about and what drove me to do what I'm doing now, which is just asking the question of like, why do we do it this way? You know, yeah. is, there's, isn't there a better way to do this? And I've always, I have this story, I think I was in an article that I, byline article that I wrote when I was literally a medical student in Boston at Mass General Hospital, scrubbing on a, helping out on a gallbladder surgery where the surgeon was just doing this surgery out of the 1950s. And I was just like, well, that's interesting, Dr. So-and-so. I, you know, I've, learned, I've heard you can do a lot of this stuff through scopes and through small incisions. And, and he's just looking at me, giving me the dirty eye the whole time and, and said, he literally, we could have both crawled in this incision thing. It's just crazy how, how barbaric uh, this, yeah. this was. And, uh, and I was just the naive medical student, just, you know, I'm sure he wanted to swat me from across the table. But he did. He finally chimed in and said, I do it this way because it's how Dr. Churchill taught me how to do it. And I knew what that meant. Dr. Churchill was the chief of surgery there in 1930. Whoa. Okay. So he had trained in the 50s. And this was now, this was in the late 80s. But but that had a huge impact on me. I'm thinking, how is it, how could you, I don't know. It just, it was, it was, it just, there was a real dissonance there. And that's when I first started this kind of built into my psyche in medicine, which is looking at kind of everything we do, little things, big things, and then think about how can we do it better? Why do, why do we do it this way and how can we do it better? And uh, that, 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 that's sort of a common thread that, that uh, like you said, my cousin, thank God he's, he's alive, but God, there's got to be a better way yeah. to do that than to, than to put him through. You know, near well, and your mom, and, your mom's lucky to have not just you, but you. Right. You know the ropes. You know the system. Our dear friend Joe Abdo has mm-hmm. a great story where his mom had multiple myeloma. And she's confronted with all these choices. And Joe happens to know the game. He knows the trials. He knows how to speak the language. And he's telling his mom's doctor about what she should be on. And the doctor doesn't even know these treatments exist. Yeah. How do we solve for that luck of having to be lucky to have Joe as your caregiver or you as your mom's caregiver. And in my case, my uncle told me not to do chemo because it would have put neuropathy back in my fingers and I was a concert pianist. So that's yeah. the luck. Part. I think I got to be the, the, the cynical Gen X. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, we just have to have better doctors and better systems mm-hmm. and people who understand. Like, you know, my mom like, has great doctors, but 
to navigate and coordinate. You push here, you squeeze there. I mean, everything she has is very intertwined. Mm-hmm. And nobody but me understands the sort of the nuances of how it all interacts. It's just not nothing against them individually, but the system doesn't really allow sort of this integrative approach. And again, she has me, so I can I can do that. So I think it's a combination of doctors being more committed to that and having systems and using modern technology, using data and, and records and, and, and you know, um, digital health platforms and other things to facilitate and better coordinate care. So we have a long ways to go with it. So six years ago, uh, I think happy anniversary coming up soon, you started this company called Pav Med. Correct. It was like a Dungeons and Dragons dice roll to get that title. How'd <laughs> I, play, that I played Dungeons and Dragons. I, I know. I, I, I was a math nerd, remember, yeah, in, uh, in high school. I was, I was a, a D&D guy. So where'd the name come from? Oh, that's interesting. So prior to PadMed, the first chapter in this enterprise was an entity called Pavilion Holdings Group. And right, that say was, no more. <laughs> yeah, so that was me and the and the two other co-founders, and we'd started this entity. It was basically a holding company that had that functioned, and we decided to start and spin off individual medical device companies. And we were doing that while one of the other physicians, the other surgeon of the group, we were practicing full time. And so that's where it came from. Pavilion was intended to sort of describe a, Got it. You know, Pavilion with lots of stuff in it. You know. And it's really grown. You're acquiring businesses. Is it fair to say that the general gist of the products and the services and the diagnostics that this company is going to bring to market are to help people catch illness before it becomes an illness or catch it early enough when it's not going to kill you? It's actually broader than that. Okay. So, so let me see if I can describe it. And, and it's evolved. It's actually broadened in directions that we didn't fully anticipate, which is one of the things I'm proud of, because we structured and built the foundation to allow us to be nimble and to pounce on 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 in, on technologies and opportunities. So broadly speaking, what we decided, we, prior to PadMed, we had done single product companies. We said, okay, we have a better way to suck blood clots out of the, you know, large blood clots out of a patient's um, lungs or their heart, you know, long, two feet clots without open surgery, which is what we used to do. That was sort of a good example of figuring out a better way to do things. I used to do open heart surgery to, to pluck out blood clots from the lungs and said, this is crazy. We're like cracking this person's chest. There's got to be a better way to go in with some kind of a catheter and suck the stuff out. So that's how we, we, we've done single product companies. And we said, look, we have a business model. We're, we're, we have this, you know, just to pat ourselves on the back a little bit, me and Brian, uh, my the chief medical officer, have a bit of a unusual uh, aptitude for understanding the clinical side and the commercial side. You know, like, what is it going to take to take something that actually can be valuable as a, as a commercial product? And so we, you know, had the audacity to say, we're going to start this company from scratch, and we're going to be a diversified medical technology company from scratch, not focus on any, not be pigeonholed in a, into, you know, cardiovascular, which is, which is where our sweet spot is, and orthopedics or anything else. But to say that we're going to build an infrastructure where we can access the public markets, so we have access to public capital, and be able to advance products, cutting-edge technologies, disruptive products, not sort of better widget products, but really truly disruptive products across the spectrum in, in a way that benefits patients broadly. So, so that's where I'm going to get to your, your point. So, so sometimes it's in preventing or picking things up in an order disease. Sometimes it's, it's doing things less invasively with less trauma and less, less risk for complications. Sometimes it's doing it more cost-effectively to, to, so the resources in the system can be applied to other things. So we took a pretty broad vision as to what, as to what the kinds of technologies that we were looking to uh, develop. 
uh, what I was saying earlier was that we didn't realize how broad it would be because initially we were fo- focused on what we kind of knew, which were medical technologies, tools that we use in, in surgery and interventional care and trying to come up with better ways to do that. But because we had structured the company the way it is, when we had an opportunity to license technology in molecular diagnostics to ad- identify esophageal precancer, something which we really had little contact with since I was in medical school, we had a structure where we could say, wow, this thing has been you know, published in science. We got a call from a contact um, a person who runs University Hospitals Cleveland and he told us his faculty had some amazing technology in this space. And we sort of hesitated a little bit and we said, look, let's become diet. Let's, let's expand our footprint to not just include medical devices. So you nimbled but yourself. Exactly, right. Into and, a software. And I'm really proud of that because we, you know, there were other larger named companies that were sniffing around. And I think we did a, I think I'm proud that we got it, but I also think we did a better job than a larger, less nimble company would be because we had something on the market within a couple of years. So let's focus on that one thing because I think from a relatability perspective, we we can focus on this one specific thing. So I'm going to say it in Matt language and you'll say you're wrong, you're an idiot and (laughs) say it this way. But so let's say, and I only know this because of our friend Joe Abdo Mm -hmm. kind of explained this to me from like a flowchart perspective. You're eating too many beans and you're going to Chipotle too much, not a sponsor, and you get GERD. Everyone's got GERD. Prilosec, not a sponsor. You know, whatever the hell it is you're on. And hopefully you see a GI or a doctor every now and then and you get an endoscopy over 50. Maybe you want to do these things because you think there's normal preventative care. But now there's some kind of, I'm going to say some kind of test you get either during or after your endoscopy and they run some genetic tests and screenings and they say, you know what, you, Mr. Bushbake Beans, not a sponsor, you should either stop eating these beans or go on this medicine because you might get esophageal cancer. And now we have a way to help you not get it. Okay. So you started off on the right foot, but okay. then you veered off in a direction that's actually, it's way worse than that. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I'm glad I started <laughs> yeah. light. Yeah, you started off fine, but the tragedy of this uh, of the situation we face, and you know, when you talk about the things that you focus on, there is no better example, in my mind, in medicine, of a sort of tragic, all deaths are tragic, but tragic deaths from a cancer that is eminently preventable with technologies that we have and tools that are available to us. I'm saying this not because it's my only, but I I, I truly believe, you know, we have this cancer moonshot uh, proposal that the administration has put forth and a lot of emphasis on, you know, uh, high-minded goals with regard to cutting cancer deaths. I, I really don't think there's any 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 area of cancer where you, you have the opportunity to have a bigger impact than in this condition. So let me start with where you started and kind okay. of aim it aim Fix it everything aim, I aim said. it in that direction. So so you're right. The di- there are dietary con- contributors to acid reflux, GERD, like the things you described, right? But it's more than that. Only because, I can name the consumer yeah, brands <laughs> because it's more than that. Because people in the 40s and 50s and 60s were also eating like crap, right? Yeah. It's not like they were. They were eating kale and, um, you know, and, and and healthy food. Yeah, there was no kale in the World War II food packets. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, the, look at a TV dinner for the right. 50s, right? So, so, so there is some other fact, something else going on that has led to an explosion in the number of people who have a lot of reflux, GERD. We'll just use the term GERD. GERD is gastroesophageal reflux disease. Mm-hmm. If you take just, say, every week, I have every week I have a, I have these symptoms where I eat and I get I lay flat or in other situations I get 
heartburn. I get this pain that almost feels like 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 a heart attack. And I might take my you know my um, Lanta. I might take Prilosec or something over the counter and maybe keep it in check. But it happens every week. There's 50 million people with that. One in four adults in this country have what we call chronic GERD mm-hmm. at least once a week. Um, that's a lot. What they don't realize. So you said they go see a GI, maybe this. They have no idea about any of that. There's nothing on their radar about getting that checked. The only thing that that what we pound into people through TV advertising and so forth is you're having heartburn, you're burping, take this purple pill and and it'll go away, right? That's Mm -hmm. all we tell people. Right. um, uh, On the lace. Eat all the beans you want. Yeah. Make the pill go. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Correct. And it's not that much better on the medical side, right? So a typical, these people do not see a gastroenterologist. Not 50 million people seeing gastroenterologists. They might see their they might see their primary care physician, or they might have a primary care physician. They see their primary care physician, and it never comes up. Right. They go to their primary care physician. They talk about their cholesterol and this and that. You know, your blood pressure and you know. And if they're not on a prescription, uh, yeah. you never know they're doing OTC. No, because it's OTC, and they might it might be on the list of problems, but they never get to it right. unless it actually the symptoms are difficult to control. Mm-hmm. So if you're like you know if you're keeping it in check by popping your your product your, your Prilosec. It's not even going to come up in your interactions with your primary care doctor. Right, Forget right. about it. So we're stages away from a yeah. specialist. Okay. So, but what is the consequence of it? What happens with reflux is the stomach fluid, acid, and bile in your stomach end up in your food tube, in your esophagus, the, 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 the downstream part of your food tube, and that part of your your food tube is not your esophagus is not designed to be exposed to acid, as you might imagine. The lining of your stomach is is, is Specifically designed to not handle. a fabulous place to rent some space. Exactly. So it's lo- it's looking here and saying, "What is all this acid, man? This is you know, this is really not supposed to be here. I better change my lining to look more like stomach mm. or to you know intestine, so I can handle this acid. So it's a really kind of a an attempt at like in a lot of things in health medicine, an attempt to kind of accommodate this abnormal signal. Right. Anytime you try to accommodate an abnormal signal, try to do things differently in your body, your cells can mess that up. So the process of, it's called metaplasia, where the lining of the cells are trying to change in response to the stimulus. And that leads to this condition. That, that, That in itself is a condition called Barrett's esophagus, which is an esophageal precancer. So patients, consumers, most primary care physicians do not understand the relationship between GERD and esophageal precancer. It's just not on their radar. That seems so... Like like antediluvian. It's like, crazy. Yeah. yeah, it is nuts. I mean, if you you know when we talk to primary care physicians, we bring it up like, oh yeah, I do remember medical school. We talked there was this yeah Barrett's. I guess I, I remember that. Mm-hmm. But in terms of their focus, their focus is on symptom symptomatology, and and they they do not send patients to primary care physicians to gastroenterologists unless they have severe symptoms. Mm. That's a little bit shocking. But the tragic part of it is that if you pick up esophageal precancer, so you can have Early stage precancers, which is this metaplasia where the cells are just looking a little bit abnormal, you know, they're, they're, they're modifying themselves. And then there's dysplasia, which is very common in many other cancers, cervical cancer, breast cancer. Right. There's dysplasia where you're just on the verge of actually becoming mm-hmm. cancerous, right? Those precancers, we have all the elements to deal with them, to prevent them from progressing to actual cancer. You can monitor people who have the earlier stages by doing an endoscopy on a regular basis, just like you get a colonoscopy, right? And and check to see if you're progressing along the spectrum. And then if you get into that dysplasia phase where you're not quite a cancer, we have a treatment 
that's available to, pa- to patients where through an endoscopy, you can do an ablation and basically clear out the abnormal cells and reliably prevent people from progressing to cancer. Very similar to what happens with a pap test. So patient with um, cervical dysplasia because of right. HPV or some other thing, there's some abnormal cells. You do the pap test, you're like, ah, oh, there's a little bit of abnormality there. You track it. If you get dysplasia, you can do a localized um, ablation type procedure. And not get it. And not get it. Right. So that's, so we, all of those elements have been around for a long time. Right. right? So in the vein of let's try to knock out cancer in general, we're going to take one more break and come back with a bonus third segment because I, I want to wrap this up in a way that gets us really pissed so we yeah. can do some cool things to hopefully get yeah. in the minds of doctors. This is so obvious. Yeah. It's simple. All right. We'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. As someone who was born with a brain tumor, this idea of like, how could I never have got in the first place? If, if there's a way to know that this is a gateway to something else, obviously we've learned that lesson with cigarettes and smoking. I don't think in my, my Jewish cynicism, we're going to get people to stop eating things that give them GERD. Because oh, this it's is obesity. It's all obesity. We know this it's is, totally this is America. Be, yeah. Until yeah. we cure obesity, we're not going to cure GERD. So I think we get the gist that there's a test now that people can get that'll predict whether they're at risk for esophageal cancer. It'll predict whether they have precancer. It's not just predict it's not just risk it's not just predicting your risk. It determines whether you actually have a precancer which can be treated to prevent the cancer. That's insane. Yeah. All right. Okay. I, I, and but which is one quick note on esophageal cancer just to remind people how the, the tragedy of this is not just that we're missing it, but that esophageal cancer is the second most lethal cancer. It's a death sentence. The story we hear every day is a 55-year-old been taking, you know, popping um, anti-acids for 20 years, thought they were fine. They show up with weight loss and anemia, and the GI puts the scope down and says, ah, shit, there's, you know, this person's going to die. I say this with air quotes. Is it as simple as helping 
primary care physicians just ask the basic question, are you taking any antacids? It's actually simpler than that because they already know that. It's already in the history. It's already in the, med- it's in the electronic medical record. The, the, the task that we have right now, as you said, we have a test. We have a molecular diagnostic modern sequencing DNA test that can be performed on a sample that can be collected in less than five minutes, two minutes. You swallow this little balloon thing. You get these cells come out. They get sent for this fancy molecular diagnostic test, positive or negative. We get an answer. So it's as simple as educating primary care physicians and also um, consumers and patients that if you have longstanding GERD, you are at risk of having a precancer. If you have the precancer, you're at risk of getting this deadly, deadly esophageal cancer. There is a test that can be done in two minutes in an office that can determine whether you have the precancer or not. If you have the precancer, you can be monitored or and treated before you develop the cancer and not die of cancer. That's it. That's what, we're, that's what we're educating primary care physicians about, is to understand the relationship and understand the availability of a non-invasive test that can pick this up, just like we do with other you know, mammograms and uh, you know, other, other um, you know, HPV tests and other tests that we or can Cologuard. use. Or We had the exact yeah. sciences team here a couple of yeah. weeks ago. Yep. And mm-hmm. from, uh, from almost like an evolutionary perspective, here's a test you can get that'll put you at risk. I'm sorry. Here's a test you take at home, and it goes to your doctor, and the doctor says, oh, you should probably get a test. Yes, exactly. It is, it, it's triaging people and identifying those who should be getting further workup and who are in the system being monitored. We're not going to monitor all 50 million people, right? Our idea is to identify the ones that actually have the precancer so those people can be monitored so we never, ever see them ending up with this tragic cancer. As you said, I'm a thoracic surgeon. I, don't, I practiced heart surgery, but I trained in general thoracic surgery as well. So I know how gruesome an operation an esophagectomy is. It is not fun. You're basically splitting the person open from stem to stern and taking out their esophagus and pulling up a stomach, and it's just not, not good. It's so, something no one really wants. No. Is this as much a consumer play as it is a doctor play? So we have both. We have we we've established we're we're we've established a direct to consumer channel in Phoenix that we're sort of dabbling in and trying to understand what what's effective in getting people to understand this and getting pe- patients to people who have this to understand to be educated and to and to make themselves available. We have a, a telemedicine service that we work with where people can actually get screened for determine whether they should get the test. And we have our own test centers that actually. Well, where we have our own nurse practitioners will perform it, but the but the big the big task is really with physicians, with with primary care physicians understanding the relationship between these two diseases and the availability of a of a test, and also to be perfectly blunt, getting getting you know we have to run this as a business, so getting reimbursement for that. I mean, yeah. we have a we have a big challenge. Ahead of us, we're working with Medicare. We're working with private payers to get this covered. We had a open meeting with Medicare where Mindy uh, Mordecai, who's the one of the leading Mordecai, editors, Mordecai excuse me, <laughs> uh, who's an amazing woman, tragic uh, a widow of an esophageal cancer, um, a person who died of esophageal cancer, and just listening to her tell the, the Medicare folks about you know. Uh, you know, how long they've been waiting, for, you know, groups like her have been waiting for. But that's the story. If yeah. only this existed when my ex died from this. Correct. But she's made it her life's mission to save other lives and to and to advocate for it. So there is work with regard to advocacy around, you know, with, um, you know, with legislators and payers and so forth. To well, get go to market the, and market access and that jargony crap is a whole other show. I know, I know. But uh, so that's what we're working on now. We're, we're very committed to, to 
to establishing broad availability of this test so people can get it done and have it covered by their insurance. Is there a simple thing listeners can understand about a role? I mean, what role do consumers or patients play in helping something get approved? Because anyone can like march on the FDA and do the little meetings and whatever, but what is it, it, there's no simple answer, but if there were a simple answer, what can patients who've lost somebody through esophageal cancer that are told, there's a test now, Someone else doesn't have to go through this. They can, they can demand through whatever channels they have, through their legislators, through, through their companies, through their insurance companies, that the system provides this test so people won't die of esophageal cancer. Just love the idea of it's possible to not even get it in the first place was unheard of 20 years ago. Exactly. Right. I mean, that's why I said back, back then why this is in many ways the greatest, one of the greatest tragedies in cancer care because we have one of the worst cancers. We know everything about it. We know who gets it. We can identify those people and we, we, can, and we can literally prevent them not just from dying but from getting it. You know, the reason we have to get it in the pre-cancer stage is that if you develop like, for example, you mentioned Cologuard. If you, if you pick up a stage one uh, colon cancer, you know, they can pick up some of the adenomas, but they mostly are picking up cancer. You pick up a stage one colon cancer, you can be cured. Pick up a stage one breast cancer, cured. You can stage one cervical cancer, similarly, right? So that's why we have good screening uh, modalities for those. Esophageal cancer, stage one esophageal cancer has a 40% five-year survival. Right. So more than half will die at stage one. one. So you cannot pick it up. It doesn't help. You know, they have these blood tests now, and some of them might be able to pick up an esophageal cancer here or there. It doesn't matter. If you pick it up at one, you're still going to have a 50-50 chance of dying. So that's the difference here is that we can pick it up in the precancer stage. And there's, it's actually quite miraculous because there really aren't other great examples of picking things up in the precancer stage. So this yeah. is true cancer prevention. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, the, the, really, the, 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 best, the best example is HPV testing for... Uh, well, then you cancer. just don't get it ever. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, so you never get it. But that's not common. Mostly, we're trying to pick up early-stage cancer. And then there's Gardasil 9, which goes up to 45 years old. Yeah. So even if you have it, you're not going to get it. Yeah, you're it's just amazing. not going to get it. Exactly. Right. The odds... Uh, wait. Just <laughs> the idea of just not getting it is... Okay, it's not innovative. It's just why... It's basic. It's yeah. ridiculous. It's so Pretty basic. basic yeah. It's so simple. All right. Well, I want to rile up my base <laughs> because we're going to challenge everybody to figure out what it is we can do as listeners, as advocates. This just, and I would assume this is almost like a gateway drug to future diagnostics too. Sure. Yeah. And we, you know, this is again, this is why we have science. Why we, why we advance the fact that we can sequence using NGS, next generation sequencing, genes in, in, in minutes or hours. When I spent an entire summer of medical school sequencing one gene in the mid-80s. I mean, right. And the fact that we have this incredible technology that we can apply to really practical things today, we need to be, as a system, we just need to you know, have more streamlined paths so that people can get access. It's not perfect. There are going to be some false negatives. There are going to be some false positives. Every test has those. But there are better but problems to have. Exactly, because no one is getting it. We're not, we're not offering a test that is, we're trying to do better than something else. Like for Cologuard, they're trying to do better than colonoscopy. Nobody is getting an endoscopy right now. So right. Even, even, you know, the, if you're picking up anybody that you pick up that, can, that you can drive them to a pathway where they're getting proper monitoring and interve early intervention, is a win. Every single one is a win. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I'm going to, by the way, 
another shout out to Sean O'Neill, yep. our friend here, who is yet to be on the show. You, you, so you need to bring him on. Ultimately, shame this man right now <laughs> to get, get his ass to New York and come on the show. But Leeshawn Aklog, Dr. Leeshawn Aklog, just the, the fact that you know Craig, my, my dad's surgeon. I mean, my, he's 75. He's living large. He's fabulous. Love you, Dad. And he listens to all the shows. It's it's phenomenal what yeah. you're doing, what you've invented. Chairman and chief executive officer and the co-founder of PavMed, formerly Pavilion something. <laughs> yep, <laughs> the name's yep, right. Yep. And Lucid Diagnostics. I'm going to talk to Sean about Lucid when he comes yeah. on the show. The idea of just never getting it in the first place is such a good thing to talk about today yeah. compared to just dying of it 20 years ago. Yeah. I, I, I just, you know, thanks for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I really, I think the sort of taking the anger approach, you know, of just saying this is not acceptable mm-hmm. uh, is, 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 is something that I commend you for because <laughs> I think, I think the system needs, needs uh, people like you and your, and your, and your listeners to, to shake things up. And that's, you know, we, we certainly can benefit from that. Well, more to come, my friend. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Sarah Rosa Davies. It's mixed and edited by Sarah Rosa Davies and Kyle Moore. Special thanks to Brianna Seeley for added support. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us. And we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.